This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. And so Jesus and his disciples are heading due north, 25-mile uphill walk, heading towards Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks this really strange question culturally. He asks this really unique question historically. He says, who do people say that I am? For us, that's a very strange question culturally. After you find out someone's name, the next thing you ask them is not, and who are you? The next thing you ask them is, what do you do? So Jesus asks this very bizarre question of his disciples. He doesn't, he doesn't say, in past cultures and generations, he doesn't say, you know, what family do I belong to? He doesn't say, what geographic region am I from? In other words, in other times and places, that would define a person. That would make up who they are. In our day and age, it's, what do you do? What have you accomplished? Where are you at meriting life? Jesus asks this very bizarre question for us culturally, and he says, who do people say that I am? I I would also tell you that this is an incredibly unique question historically. If you go back and study all the world religions, any religion that's made it any kind of, um, uh, let's say, across boundaries geographically and across boundaries in terms of time and history, if you look at any world religion, you, you won't find anyone launching a world religion who asks this question. That they will talk about the way to God, they will talk about God, but they will never ask questions to get you to say, you're God. You go back and check. Muhammad did not say this. Moses did not say this. Buddha did not say this. Confucius never talked like this. We talk about it a lot as we go through this series. There's really only four options to deal with Jesus and what he claims to be. Who he claims to be. He's either a liar. He's just plain crazy. He's a lunatic. You know, imagine if some of you have been my friend. Some of y'all have been my friend now for a couple of years. So he's in between years two and three in his friendship with the disciples here. What if I had some of y'all over to dinner tonight and I said, now we've been spending a lot of time together. We've watched a lot of games together. We've, we've read the Bible together. And, I, and I've been putting up with you guys for a long time. And I would just like to ask you one question. Do you have any idea who I am? You would think I'm just plain crazy for even asking the question. And if I began to insinuate that I was God in flesh, you would think I'm out of here. We're done. It was a good two and a half years, but this is over. Or he might be a legend. You know, this is the most recent analysis of all this Jesus claiming to be God. It's that Jesus never actually said that. That was infused back into the text by his disciples. But this text that so clearly says that Jesus thinks he is God was put in later on. Jesus would never have done that. His disciples put that in there. And then you say, okay, well, why would his disciples put that in there? Well, they were leading a church and they wanted to be powerful. And so if they had Jesus be God, then spending time with him would advance their cause. Let me remind you, Peter is the primary eyewitness that Mark is drawing from in this book. How does Peter look in this text? He gets called Satan in this text. (laughs) How's that for authority and influence and control? Not very good. In fact, when Matthew tells this story, Matthew says that Peter says, you are the Messiah, you're the son of God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says, blessed are you, you did not come up with this on your own. You have received from God himself 
an amazing insight into into who I am. And this confession of who I am, this confession is what I will build my church upon. You are the rock. When Peter recounts the story, he does not include any of that. You see how it's absent from our text? This is not Peter making up a legend so he can have power. This is Jesus saying, I'm the Lord of the universe. And so the first question is, who do people say that I am? And this is what the response is. These are the popular options. You're John the Baptist, or maybe you're Elijah. Verse 28, maybe you're just one of the prophets. And in these answers, the the crowds cannot possibly act like Jesus is nothing or inconsequential. He's been doing amazing things. But in this answer, the crowds are saying, if we were to tally up the 50 greatest NBA players of all time, you're definitely in that group of the best 50 of all time. But if we were to tally up the best starting lineup of all time, I'm not so sure you'd make it. Of course, we would have to talk about you as an option. You've done some pretty amazing things. But, but I mean, if you just look at who they think he is, they don't say Abraham. They don't say Joseph. They don't say Moses. They don't say David. They don't say Joshua. They don't say anyone who has actually done quite astounding things in the history of Israel. They, they pick a prophet, a good prophet, and Elijah, but just a prophet, not a king. Not a priest. And so they honor Jesus by saying, you're John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the other prophets. But, but their categories for him and the way they label him and the way they understand him are completely and utterly inadequate. They think that Jesus is just another prophet preparing the way for the Lord. They do not give him the definitive role of being the Lord himself. Jesus is not, is not someone else in the long line of prophets pointing to the someone. He is the someone that all the prophets have called for. He is not another priest that will offer another animal sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of God, to, to, to satisfy the wrath of God for a time. Pointing to that one who will come and be the great sacrifice that ends God's wrath for his children forever. He's not just a great priest. He's the great high priest. He is the one all the other priests pointed to. He is the sacrifice that all the other sacrifices pointed to. And again, he's not just a prophet telling you about a king that is to come. He is the prophet, the king, and the priest. And so we read in verse 29b, he, he goes a little farther. He's saying it's not enough for you to be a passive recipient I want to call you into active participation. He says, it's not enough for you to give me social commentary. I want to call forth from you 12 a sacrificial confession of being my disciples. And so very little application is planned in this sermon. I'll just tell you that right now. A lot more will be here next week when we talk about discipleship. But I just want each and every one of us to know that this text, when Jesus says to them in verse 29, he says, but you... Literally, he says the word you twice. It's not captured in our translation. But you, who do you say that I am? Listen, believer, if you've been calling yourself a believer for a long time, one day it will not matter what doctrine you know to be true. It will matter how you lived your life believing that he's the Lord of the universe. He's calling his disciples into something so much more. We'll look at that next week. But not only that, if you're a skeptic and you're here just trying to figure it out, again, welcome. I am super glad that you're here. I want you to know it only feels fair to me to let you know you will answer this question one day. The scriptures are very clear. Inside of every one of us, we know that there's God. 
Inside, every one of us knows that there's a God. The atheistic, modern, modern philosophies are going away. Did you know that like 90-some percent of people now admit that they know there's a God? And the scriptures tell us that one day you will stand, actually you will kneel in front of him. And he will say, you, who do you say that I am? It will not be enough to know what your professors thought. It will not be enough to know what Oprah thinks. It will not be enough to know what the Discovery Channel thinks. You must grapple with this question yourself. And I'm here to tell you the only eyewitness account we have of Jesus has him saying to us, I'm the Lord of the universe, and that is who I am. That is my identity. And so if that is Jesus' identity, then we just got to keep moving, and we got to get to our second question. Don't worry, this is not the second point. We've got to get to the second question, which is, so if that's his identity, what, what is his mission? If that's his identity, what's his, what's his purpose? We look in verses 31 and just to the beginning of verse 32, and that's where I'll stop today. And it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he'll rise again. And he said this to them very plainly. That text, the, the, the phrase right there in verse 31, and he began to teach them. Many commentators believe that in this 25-mile walk that could take multiple days, that this is the topic of conversation the entire time. It at least indicates, and he began to teach them, the verb tense at least indicates that this was a long, drawn-out conversation. And then it says very clearly in verse 32 that although he has been teaching in parable... And although he has been teaching in a veiled way, for the first time here at the hinge of his gospel, he is pulling his disciples aside and he's saying very directly to them, the Son of Man will suffer. He will be rejected. He will die. And then he will rise again. He said it already in a parable. He said, you know, you you go out and you scatter the seed. He's saying you throw the seed out on the ground and the seed dies and bears fruit. And so he's already indicated in parable by saying that the seed is the word and the word is him. He's already told us in a parable that he's going to die, but nobody caught it. And and he also said very directly in chapter 2, listen, at some point I am going to be taken from my disciples. And then they will fast because I will be gone. But right now we're partying because the bridegroom is here. Nobody caught it. In fact, this teaching is so radical. This teaching is such an oxymoron in the disciples' mind. This teaching is so out there and strange that Peter decides, I better pull him aside. And it says very strongly, Peter rebuked him. Do you know why Peter pulled him aside? Well, Jesus had just pulled a deaf guy aside and a blind guy aside, so Peter's learning. And the one who says, you're the Messiah, the one who says, you're the anointed one, the one who says, you're here to bring the kingdom, the one who says, you're going to crush oppression, the one who says, you're going to bring righteousness and mercy and forgiveness on the land, the one who says, we're going to rule and reign forever, that one who says, you're the Messiah, got his title right, but completely misunderstood his purpose and his mission. And it says he rebuked him. The same word that's been used over and over and over in Mark to cast demons out of people. This just sounds absolutely crazy to Peter and the rest of the disciples. And so Jesus is very plainly telling them, 
You see partially right now. You see that I'm the Messiah. But you do not yet see as you will that the Messiah must suffer, must die, must be rejected, and will rise again. You remember last week we talked about the man who was blind and Jesus touched him and gave him sight. He's like, do you see anything? Uh, I see men, but they look like trees walking around. And then he says, okay, he touches him again. And he says, I see, I see clearly. I, I can see far distances. I can see absolutely how it is. And so at the beginning of chapter 8, the disciples are being described by Mark and projected by him and portrayed by them as they were, which is completely blind to who Jesus was. And then Jesus says in parable, I'm going to touch your eyes, Peter, and I'm going to allow you to see. But this first time I'm going to ask you who I am, you're only going to see men as if they're trees walking. So you're going to get my title right and what I'm going to do, but you're going to get the way, the way I'm going to get it done, you're going to get wrong. So you're going to see, but not see. You're going to see, but not clearly. And this is just absolutely inconceivable for the disciples. Jesus is telling them this. He is saying, my weapon to defeat evil is a servant's towel and not a warrior's sword. He is saying to his disciples, I'm going to practice sacrifice above vengeance. He's saying, I'm going to be a king that comes first to endure suffering and not inflict suffering. I'm going to gain all power and influence by losing all power. I'm going to become more rich and glorious than I was before I took on skin. And I'm going to become more rich and more glorious by giving my glory and riches away. Like Peter had been taught, the Messiah would indeed defeat all evil. He would quell all injustice. He would, in fact, sit on an eternal throne. But he would not first touch wood in a throne. He would first touch the wood of the cross on the way to the throne. But this is his mission. His mission is to not go from glory to glory to glory. His mission is to go from eternal glory into incredible humiliation and suffering and death and shame. And then rise on the third day into even more glory than he had before. This absolutely blew Peter and the other disciples away. And I might add, next week, we will talk about how our lives rebuke Jesus. This crazy talk about picking up your cross every day and following him. We might know it in our heads, but our lives betray us. That we think it's ridiculous that he would ask that of us. So we've answered the question, who is Jesus? Act one in the play, he's the Messiah. He's the God-man. He's God in skin. And we've answered the question, what did he come to do or what is his purpose? Which is act two that we're going to study now. For eight chapters, his, his purpose is to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed and rise again. And then one final question screams for an answer in our text and in my mind. And that is this question of why. One little word caused a lot of thought, prayer, and contemplation in my heart this week. And that is the word in verse 31, must. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It does not say, and the Son of Man began to teach them that he might suffer many things. He doesn't say, listen boys, it's starting to get a little dangerous out here. 
I, I, I can uh, see into the future pretty well. And I've got the Herodians over here and the Pharisees over here. I've got Rome over here and Israel over here. And I've got, I've got the political leaders with all the power and they're both against me. So I just want to warn you, this might end bad for the Messiah. If he would have said, this might end bad for the Messiah, Peter would have said, we're with you. Don't worry. Pull aside. Jesus, we're with you. We'll hire some revolutionaries. This is all going to be okay. We'll just focus your miracles away from bread and towards swords, and everything's going to be totally fine. <laughs> Pay attention to me. You don't see well yet, but one day you will. He doesn't say, we begin to teach them the Son of Man will suffer. Peter would have pulled him aside and said, listen, Jesus, is the cup half empty or half full? Let's be optimistic here. Don't be so deterministic. We don't know for sure that you're going to suffer and die. We can do something about this. But Jesus says he must go through all of these category-blowing realities for the disciples. That it's the intentional plan of God for him to come and to die. I often think, and it is specifically taught in certain areas of the church. We often think, and it's specifically taught, that, that God was somehow able to make lemonade out of lemons. That somehow the cross snuck up on him. You know, there's this old story that I used to hear all the time at camp. I think I've alluded to it, to it but about a fourth of you were here back then when I said it. But there's this old story that I used to hear every summer at camp. And it was this idea that there's a man who's operating a bridge. And it's the day where the sons get to go with their dads to work. And the dad says, sure, you can come, but I want you to stay around me. And by middle afternoon, the dad had forgotten about the second grade son. And the second grade son had decided to go and explore as second grade sons will do. And the second grade son goes down into the infrastructure of this drawbridge. And so the dad sees a boat coming down the river, let's say. And the boat is just filled with lots of people. And lots of people are there. And he'd kind of been napping a little bit. And he's at the place where if he doesn't draw up the bridge, the people are going to smack into it and they're going to die. But he looks down underneath the bridge and lo and behold, there's his son playing down there. And he's got this horrible decision in his mind. Am I going to watch all these people die in the bridge or, or am I going to take the life of my son for the sake of the many? And caught in this horrible dilemma, the dad hits the button to raise up the bridge. And I've been taught, you know, Jesus got, Jesus got caught by the Romans and the Jews. And, and God was able to make lemonade out of that lemon. And because that happened, now we can look back on it and say, he died for your sins. Why don't you take him up on this offer and this unintended consequence and believe in him? Friends, our text does not say... That Jesus is unawares in chapter 8 that he's going directly to the cross. Our text says he knows this is why I came. And so the question is screaming in my mind still, why? Why did Jesus have to come and why did he have to die? Why did he have to be rejected? Why did he have to suffer? Why did he have to go into death and need to be raised on the third day? And the answer is this. It is for the inclusion of... Of his children in the kingdom of God. That God intended to include his children in his eternal kingdom, and it would be impossible to do so if Jesus does not die. Now, this question, this question of why, has been grappled with for a long time in the church. And I will not begin 
to think that I will answer this question better than the others who have gone before me. But I want to let you know in our closing time, our second point, that the Bible tells us that Jesus' suffering and death was absolutely necessary for us to be included. It was necessary for us spiritually. It was necessary for us legally. And it was necessary for us relationally. Let's walk through all three of those. And while I know that each one of these three words, suffered, rejected, and was and killed, are not directly tied to these three ideas, I want to pick them apart and connect them to these three ideas. The idea of being rejected, the idea of suffering, the idea of dying being connected to he rejected so that we could spiritually be free, he was suffered so we could legally be free, and he died so we could be relationally free. All right, let's look back at the text. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but the reason Jesus is letting his disciples know that the Jewish elites are going to be in on his death and they're going to be behind it and in it and through it, he's letting them know, I am going to suffer injustice. He's letting them know, I'm not going to get a fair trial. He's letting them know, I'm not going to get justice. He's letting them know, I'm going to be oppressed. He's letting them know, I'm going to be picked on. And what does this matter for us? I'll tell you why this matters for us. Because when we rebel against God and sin, when we choose not to follow him, when we choose not to define our lives by him, when we choose to go our own way and make our own mess of it, it's not just that we go away from him into independence, but we go away from him, and the Bible's very clear, we go under the dominion, of the prince of darkness, who is Satan. And the Bible is very clear that behind every physical oppressive government, any government that is oppressive and unjust, the Bible is very clear that behind that is demonic spiritual forces. And so Jesus being treated with injustice at the hands of the Herodians and the Pharisees, behind that is the injustice of Satan and his dominion of darkness. I hope you don't think I'm overstating this. The Bible is very clear. We are not free. We're enslaved. We are not alive apart from God. We're absolutely dead. We are not our own bosses and our own kings. We are under the dominion of Satan. And he rules us as one who wants to destroy us and one who deceives us and one who hates us. And so for Jesus to include us into his kingdom, he had to go into death as an act of injustice so that we could justly come out of death. Do you ever wonder why it says when he died in Matthew 27 that a bunch of people came up out of the tombs? And they hung around in the tombs and waited for him to be resurrected on the third day? It's because Satan took into his dominion of death. He took in the one that did not deserve to be there. And so an instant release of those who deserve to be there, except for the grace of God, were let go. And so while you and I are enslaved, apart from Christ, the first reason he had to come and suffer and die is to deliver us from death. That's why it says that he was rejected by the physical authorities in Jerusalem. But not only that, God did not simply deliver us from the dominion of death and tell us to pay him back. God did not just say, okay, now you made a mess of it. You rebelled against me. You owe me. I'm going to let you out of prison. I'm going to let you work a little bit. I'm going to let you pay me back. It's not like he's a bail officer. This is what he did next. Not only did Jesus, not only was he rejected, but he also suffered for our forgiveness. 
And so it's absolutely necessary for us legally that Jesus come and die. Let's just take a sidebar and let's talk about this and we'll come back to this point. First of all, let's say you're running around Lake Yola. You've got a brand new iPod. You're really excited about it. You've got it on your arm or however you like to have it. And, um, and another jogger who has lost their iPod, who has recently lost it or it's broken, they didn't get Apple Care. Um, they're, they're, they see it and they're so angry with you for having it that they come up to you and they snatch away from you and they throw it into the lake, almost hitting a swan boat. And um, fortunate for you, fortunate for you, I'd just like to tell you as the story's happening, a police officer is riding a bike around Lake Yola, which is illegal, I might add. And, um, and he sees this happen. And he comes up and he, he, he arrests this person that does this to you. And, and he says, basically, one, one of two things has to happen here. We have two options legally. Either you pay for the iPod or you forgive the debt that they owe you. One of those two has to happen. Either the perpetrator pays or the one who was sinned against decides to forgive. And if you decide to forgive, then you pay. Either you don't have an iPod or you go shell out your money again for another iPod. You see, here's the point. Take it beyond the physical. Take it into interrelational. Take it into the personal realm. If someone wounds you, if someone betrays you, if someone manipulates and uses you, if someone rejects you, if someone treats you as a tool and an object instead of a human being to be dignified and loved, they owe you something. Either A, you say, I'm going to make them pay this back, and you begin to wound them and manipulate them and slander them and try and hurt them. Or you say, B, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to pay the debt. This is going to cost me something. Take it back to our relationship with God. The Old Testament tells us that God is a God of forgiveness. In order for him to forgive, it should not confuse us that he then must suffer in order to forgive. And so first, for us to be delivered, he had to be rejected by the government that should have supported him. For us to be forgiven, he had to go to the cross and suffer what you and I deserve so that we don't have to pay for it. And then last but not least, God does not forgive our debt and say to us, I'm going to put you back to neutral. I've forgiven the debt. Jesus suffered for that on the cross. You're back to neutral. Make the best of it. No, the scriptures are absolutely clear that at the cross, Jesus took our guilt and our shame and our sinful record and the just wrath of God. And he gave us his righteousness, his joy, his loving record. And most importantly, he gave us the love and the approval of God. This is why Jesus had to die. I want to look at this through a long story. And it is my hope. In fact, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you... Uh, I pray that you would use me in this time, that you would convey this story in such a way that you could change our lives and cause us to believe the gospel. And Lord, there's a lot of information in this story that I feel like I need to get right in order for the point to be made. And yet I think it's worth the risk. And I would ask you to come and to teach us and to use me in this time. In your name we pray. Amen. We've had a crazy couple of weeks with a newborn. Uh, a wonderful young son. 
And uh, this week snuck up on us in, in a severe way. On Monday, I think it finally hit Trisha and I that Maddie, our first grader, and Riley, our kindergartner, were going to be out of school. And um, it snuck up on us in this way that in the past, we've never been in a public school before. We've been in a variety of schools, both she and I growing up and our children, both private and Christian. And we've never been in a public school. And so it hit us on Monday. Nobody called and asked us how much money we want to contribute to the year and gift for the teachers. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, and maybe this doesn't happen everywhere, but Trisha used to be a teacher at a private school. And at that school, three different schools actually through the years, at the end of the year, she would get from the families and the parents and the students gift cards, money, and presents that probably equaled 5 to 10% of her annual salary. It was like a big bonus at the end of the year. And so when we had children, whether it be preschool or these other schools we've been to, we always expected the room mom to call us and say, how much would you like to contribute to the gift? And we began to realize on Monday, no one called us. No one asked us. And we're just home from the hospital a week or so before um, with Liam. And we're actually quite anxious about this. And so Trisha decides, okay, um, this is what we're going to do. Riley's class has a room mom, so we're just going to let them know that we want to be a part of something in case they forgot about us over the craziness of the last couple weeks. But we knew that Maddie's teacher, Mrs. Miller, did not have a room mom. And while Trisha was able to go volunteer some, she couldn't take on the full responsibilities of a room mom. So Mrs. Miller was about to retire in the next couple years, but because of this class, decides to retire this year. (laughs) It's true. It's absolutely true. Her class, by law, is only supposed to be so big, but some, somewhere the policemen were arresting pe- people in Lake Eola, and nobody was there to find out that Maddie's class had ballooned beyond what the limit is. And in the room, frankly, were some students that needed particular love, probably from a much younger teacher. And uh, Mrs. Miller was just flat, worn out. No room, Mom, to ask the other families, would you please be a part of something for Mrs. Miller? Not only is this the end of the year, she's retiring. And so Trisha wrote a handwritten note. I copied it on Tuesday morning. We put it into envelopes. The note basically said this. If you would please tomorrow in this envelope return it back to Maddie with money inside and a letter of gratitude to Mrs. Miller who's retiring, we would really appreciate it. And uh, so although I think we both knew the writing on the wall, we allowed ourselves to go to sleep. I allowed myself to go to sleep on Tuesday night. Um, Liam did not let Trisha go to sleep on Tuesday night. We woke up the next morning, and I was actually quite anxious. You can ask the people in the office. I was pacing about this quite a bit. And I got the call from Trisha on Wednesday morning that only four children had returned the envelope. And, um, and then it was maybe a slight percentage of what we had bought the card for at Publix. Under $100 total. And I, uh, I was like, oh, Lord. I mean, I was so, I was really hurt by it. And um, that morning, Maddie, had all, we'd almost forgotten to have her write her letter of gratitude. So she wrote her letter out, and I watched her, and I was like, oh, Lord, I really pray Mrs. Miller's not in it for the money. I really hope that she's in it um, just because this is her calling, and maybe she's in it to help these kids. And maybe, just maybe, someone will write something that just makes her day, makes her year, makes her career. <laughs> not to put too much pressure on you, God, but that would be sweet if you could pull that off. <laughs> And in my mind's eye, I see a woman who 30 years ago was living in a completely different world. 
who's now completely underappreciated, devalued, not enjoyed. Most of the parents don't, don't even show up this year at the parent-teacher conference. And in my mind's eye, I see a broken, sad, dejected, potentially suicidal woman. I, I can go to extremes. <laughs> and so I raced home. I raced home and I found Maddie. And I said, Maddie, normally Maddie's playing on the computer. She's past the stage of caring that I'm home. So I had to block a couple other kids on my way to her. And um, I was like, Maddie, please tell me what happened when you gave Mrs. Miller your letter. She said, oh, Dad, she was crying. I was like, oh, no. She was crying. She was already crying in the middle of the day. What happened? Dad, she was crying. I said, why was she crying? She goes, I I asked her, why are you crying? And she pulled me aside. And she said, Maddie, I'm crying tears of joy. And I said, really? She goes, yeah. She thought the letter was so sweet. She was crying tears of joy. I looked over Maddie's shoulder on Wednesday morning. This is what she wrote. There's a quote. This is it. You did a really good job teaching me this year. I learned so much. You're my favorite teacher, and you always will be. You're very, very special to me. Melted the heart of a woman about to retire to have a seven-year-old say, you've done good. You're my favorite. You're so special. My emotional well-being is tied to who you are. And I thought that night, wow, that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. I have not done good But the Heavenly Father looks at me and says, you have done good. The one who did good climbed up on the cross and I crushed him for your iniquities. You are my favorite child. I guarantee you that God loved Jesus more than the rest of us until the cross. And now God has a conundrum of loving millions if not billions of us as if we're his favorite. We're the beloved children. God. And he says, not only have you done good, but you're very, very special to me. And so on the cross, why must the Son of Man suffer, be rejected, and die? It's so that we can be delivered from slavery, we can be called forgiven, and we can be told, you're very dear to me. You're righteous in my sight. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the ways that you minister to us. I thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness. Jesus, I pray that this would melt our hearts. I pray that this would be the blood in our veins. I pray that your gospel would be the breath in our lungs. I pray that you would radically and utterly change us because Jesus lived for us, He died for us, and he now lives in us. In your name we pray.